Uh, we, con- we continue this morning going through the Gospel of Mark, and this morning we're going to be in Mark chapter 8, starting in verses 22, going on to verses 33, uh, continuing to go through the, the life and, and earthly ministry of Jesus. Uh, but let's pray as we, we open up God's Word. Lord God, you are a redeemer. You are a redeemer of people who are broken. You are a redeemer of us when we are just don't see. And we pray in this time that we would see Jesus clearly, uh, that our vision would be unclouded, that we would see him as beautiful, as majestic, as loving, as um, one who came for us and one who even continues now to live for us. Lord, we want to believe him more and more. We want to have faith growing in him more and more. And we ask then, we beg that your spirit would be with us in this time, going forth with your word, turning us into people who reflect the image of Jesus Christ better. People who are grow in faith and in faithfulness. People who, who live in this world more visibly, and more, more carefully attuned to you. Be with the man who's preaching right here also. He is in need of your spirit as well. Uh, for your spirit is the only one who brings life in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me read for us Matthew, or Matthew, Mark chapter 8, uh, verses 22 to 33. This is the word of God. And they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Amen. Well, if you've watched it, you know, watch a movie with a a hero, some sort of hero in it. Uh, If you are reading a story that has some sort of hero that's trying to do something, that's trying to to take down the villain, trying to to save the world, you already know at the beginning what's going to happen, don't you? You know that the hero is going to emerge victorious in some way. But the only question really that you have, which is actually what makes the, the, the movie or the story fun and suspenseful, is, is, is how are they going to do it? 
How are they going to win? What are going to be the details going through the whole time there? How is it going to fall out? And if you've never read here the story of the blind man and Jesus, this one here, you still know it's going to happen, right? You still knew that this blind man was going to come to Jesus and Jesus was going to heal him. I mean, we, first of all, we've read a lot before in here. But we haven't read of, of a blind man coming to Jesus yet. But still, you know how Jesus is going to act. We've seen him in the ways that he, uh, that, that he interacts with people. We know his power, but more importantly, we know his compassion that he has too. And so the only question is, how is he going to do it? How is he going to heal this man? And it's the details that we have here that actually make it interesting. It's the details that actually begin to clue us in to the significance of the whole events here. And the first one that we see is that Jesus takes this blind man by the hand and he leads him outside of the village. Now don't overlook that fact. Because Jesus is providing a personal touch to this blind man. He's letting him know that he's there and he's leading him away from this private moment that he's about to have with him. Now, what do you think was going on as they're going outside of the village? Do you think that they were silent? Do you think that they were just kind of walking in, in, in dead silence there? I, I don't think so. I think probably what was happening is that they were talking. They're conversing. I mean, for one thing, this man must have been, uh, must have been curious. What's going on? But also, knowing Jesus, what would he have been doing? He would have been conversing with him. He would have been comforting him through this time saying, it's going to be okay. Just wait till what I do for you. Just wait till your vision is restored here. He's telling him what he's about to do. He's leading him by the hand. And he's doing this here because we see that Jesus has personal interest in people. Jesus has this personal interest that led him to not just, just wave his hand and have this man healed, but he actually had the interest to take him by the hand, lead him out away from everyone else, and have this private moment with him where he could tell him what he was doing, who he was, what was going to happen to him, telling him about the glory of God. Jesus has a, per, a, a personal interest because he is the Son of God. He reflects the heart of the Father, and the Father God also has a, per, a, a personal interest in us as well. Friends, you can know him as Father. You can know him in this way because there's a, a relationality that's implied there, isn't it? You can know Jesus in this way just as he led this man by the hand. See, Jesus, when he comes to us, when Jesus rescues and redeems us, he doesn't just do it in these big overarching ways. He also brings it down to us. His words aren't just for us as a whole people. His words are also for individuals like you and myself. Now, even in this moment here, though, before Jesus, or before Jesus heals this man, he's already, though, beginning to open this man's eyes. Because the first person that this blind man would see standing before him would be Jesus, right? And yet already, as Jesus is walking out there, walking outside the village to him, taking him by the hand, Jesus is already opening his eyes in a matter of, of, of speaking. He's opening the eyes of his understanding, to understand, letting him know who, was, who it was who was standing before him right there. See, seeing Jesus is more than just a physical sight. Seeing Jesus is comprehending him. It's having an understanding of who he is. And of course, here we see too, Jesus opens his eyes. Again, with this personal touch, this kind of strange touch. 
He spits on his eyes and puts his hands on there. But that's not the strangest detail, right? The strangest detail, the most unexpected detail, is it doesn't happen all at once. It happens in this progressive way. He puts his hands on his eyes and opens up. What do you see? Well, I, I can see something. I don't quite see everything. It's a little blurry. And then he does it again. And then he heals him fully. But why would he do something like that? Why would Jesus, I mean, was this an extra hard miracle that he had to do it twice? Or was there something lacking in the power of Jesus? No. The answer is no, but rather what he's doing is he's making a point. And what he, the point that he's making is related in one sense, or it's an illustration of everything that we've read here up to this point. So like last week, if you were here with us last week, we had this moment where Jesus had fed the 4,000 people. After he had fed the 5,000 people, the disciples should have known who it was that was with them there. But yet they were asking, hey, who's got the bread? Wait. And they're, and, and they're, they're thinking about Jesus only in terms of, of, of bread. And they don't act, they're actually missing the, the whole point and missing the fact that, wait, Jesus says, who fed the 4,000? Who fed the 5,000? Are you still not seeing? Are you still not understanding? And then here, right after this, as we read this morning too, we have the confession of Peter. You are the Christ. And so we have this progressive seeing, this progressive uh, understanding of who Jesus is. In one moment, the disciples are, well, Jesus, who are you? And then, and then, and then just a little bit later, Peter goes, well, you're the Christ. And so the point here that Jesus is making implicitly also through healing this man is that if seeing Jesus is a comprehension of him, if it's an understanding of him, if it's a spiritual sight, then seeing Jesus doesn't all happen instantly. He may come into initial sight, but over time he comes into further focus as well. And the blind man had his understanding slowly opened here on this walk outside the village, right? He's, he's understanding who Jesus is. And then he gets a, a better view of, 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 or a better sight of Jesus as he puts his hands on his eyes and heals him the first time. And then when he completes it with the second. And he was learning here. He was learning to see Jesus more and more completely. He was coming into better focus as he went along here. Jesus was progressively revealing his glory to him. Showing his character. Showing who he was until he beholds Jesus standing right before him clearly. And especially he sees the glory of Jesus Christ as this one who was sent to come and to open the eyes of the blind. Right? The, it prophesied in the Old Testament here, this one who would come and bring forth this great reversal of everything from the disorder and the suffering in the world into putting it in its proper order and restoring joy to people. And the Lord promising even to open the eyes of the blind. And here he is opening the eyes of the blind man. Here's something new happening. Here's something promised, something unique, something significant is happening. Not only with Jesus, but in this moment here as he's opening the, blind, the eyes of the blind man. But that significance though that we have here, that we see... This great moment here where Jesus is coming and Jesus is, is bringing in hope to this man. There's also something symbolic here as well. And it's an illustration of the disciples as they are starting to see, as they're starting to understand. They are learning to see who Jesus is. And the question is just the same for them as it was for the blind man. Who is Jesus? 
And the question is for all of us here, just the same as for the disciples and for the blind man. Who is Jesus? Well, Jesus shows himself here. He shows himself in his curing of their spiritual blindness in this metaphorical way by this man. We see him bringing himself into greater focus. And again, for us, as we think here, how did you first see Jesus? How did you first see Jesus? I mean, did it happen all at once? For some of you, it, it, uh, it may have happened slowly over your, your, your lifetime. It may have happened pretty quickly in one moment, perhaps, that you can look back to and remember, yeah, at that point, I began to see and understand who Jesus was. And I've been growing and seeing him ever since. Some of us, it's like, I don't know. I've just always grown with this greater vision and clarity of who Jesus is. See, the point is here that we, most of us have had our eyes slowly, at least nothing else over time, open to understanding him. And there might be some of you here this morning who haven't really seen Jesus, but perhaps he's doing that even right now. Perhaps even he's opening your eyes slowly. Maybe you've had questions about who he is, and you're here this morning wondering, well, I want to know a little bit more who he is. And he's doing that. And the thing is, like all of us, all of our vision will be progressively made clearer and clearer until one day it's not just a spiritual understanding, but one day it's actually real and physical as we see Jesus standing before us. At that moment, our vision uh, and will not be blurry in the least, but we'll actually see him and know him. We'll comprehend him with our minds, with our hearts, and we'll actually see him physically with our eyes. Until that day, though, all of us have a physical understanding or have a, a, an incomplete understanding of him. And so this morning, let's listen to Jesus. Let's hear him and let's see. Let's see him clearer than we did before. And so the first of our two points we have is that we're seeing Jesus with greater clarity. We want to see Jesus with greater clarity. And, it's, and as they're, they're, they're walking along, Jesus is, is walking with his disciples after he heals this man he looks at his disciples and says, who do people say that I am? Who do people say that I am? They start listing some of the, the common answers that are going on. Well, you're, some people say you're John the Baptist. Some people say you're Elijah. Some people just say you're, you're a prophet. All noble names, all, all nice titles, uh, good callings here. But all of those answers are wrong. Because all of them are associated with someone who would be foretelling the salvation of the Lord, not actually the one who was a savior. They're looking at him as some, someone simply who's associated with, well, with the salvation that God would bring, rather than actually being the one who would come and bring the salvation. And if we look at Jesus as anything less than, than savior, then we're not actually seeing Jesus. But Jesus follows this with a personal question. He says, though, okay, not just them. Not just who do... They say I am. Who do you say that I am? We get those famous words from Peter then. You're the Christ. You're the Christ. What's it mean that Jesus says, or, or that Jesus is the Christ? Well, Christ is just simply the, the Greek translation for Messiah, which is anointed one. So Christ means anointed one. And it's referring to this coming person from, from the Lord bestowed with a, a special anointing for a special task, which is going to be the one who, who brings salvation to God's people here. Anointings that you see through the Bible are, are given to, to, to someone who is set apart for a special task to the Lord, right? Priests in the Old Testament 
were anointed with oil. You had kings who were anointed, right? Like David, when, when, they, when Samuel goes out into the field and finds David, this is the one. He anoints him with oil. He sets him apart as being, this is the royal king who God has for his people. And so the Messiah, the Christ, who it's, it's someone who is specially anointed, but not anointed with oil, anointed with the Holy Spirit, poured out by God the Father upon him to bring out or to bring about all of God's promises that he's given for deliverance. Right? These people here who Jesus was coming to, they were people who were slaves to their own desires. They were under dominion to their own hearts, their own desires, and that led them then to being under foreign dominion also. And so for these people, keeping their eyes open for the Messiah, for this anointed one, they had such Hopes and dreams tied with this here because, oh, at that moment when he comes, our, the glory that we've had previously, it's going to be reclaimed. We're going to finally be free from our enemies. Salvation's going to be here for us. Even salvation from, from the sins that have put us in this place in the very, um, initially anyways here. And then expectation. There's going to be incredible, there's incredible expectation that these people had. And so when Peter says, Jesus, you're the Christ, it's freighted with all of this. It's a very theological uh, 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 phrase that he's saying here. It's freighted with all of this Old Testament weight. And it's fun to read this because the disciples have learned something about Jesus, about being with him. Right? In one moment last week, here they are thinking, well, I don't know. Who are you, Jesus? In, in this way of, 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 of they had to look at the, the and think about the, the loaves and, and the, the scraps of bread that they collected here. And now, though, they seem, well, you're the Christ. It's a proper recognition that they have. It's even a confession of faith. It's this great, grand yes moment. Jesus, we know who you are. All right, they've had, they've had glimpses of Jesus. They've had glimpses when they've recognized him, but none so brazen, none of them so clear as this. Jesus has come into greater focus for them. They can see better than they did before. But their vision, though, is still a little bit blurry. It's like as if Jesus begins to show them himself, and then they still say, well, yeah, but we still see people walking around like trees. Why? Because as Jesus begins to elaborate more upon their confession here, they don't seem to really get it. He takes their, their confession of him being the Christ and he says, okay, this is who the Christ is then. This is what happens to the Christ in verse 31. Son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the scribes and the chief priests and be killed and then after three days be raised again. Peter pulls on Jesus as a side and says, what are you talking about? What? It says he rebukes him. I mean, the guts that Peter must have had in this moment. I mean, unfounded, right? Um, but what's this all about? He's correcting Jesus on who the Christ is. Except the fact is here, he's incorrectly correcting Jesus with his own misconceptions about who the Christ really is. And again, it takes guts for Peter to do something like this. I mean, wrong. But still, this, guy, this guy's got some guts of steel here. But why? Why does he do it? What's he doing? It's because he thought he knew who Jesus was. And when Jesus didn't fit into his own conceptions of who he thought he should be, then he tried to cram Jesus and stuff him into the tiny box of his own understanding. 
But the thing is, we can't fit Jesus into our own boxes. He doesn't fit. Our boxes are too small and they're in an entirely different shape. Because the shape that Jesus takes is a cruciform shape. And if we confess Jesus to be who he is, or if he really is the Christ, then our boxes and our categories need to be absolutely blown apart. And either way, if we try to stuff Jesus in there, into that little box, he's just going to blow the whole thing apart anyways, because he can't fit in there. And so knowing Jesus further and further is having him do that, having him actually be the one who reorients our categories and reorients our, our understanding of who he is. So what's your knowledge of Jesus? Right, how much do you know of him? And we have a whole spectrum of people in this room that know Jesus in, uh, in, uh, for varying lengths of time and in varying degrees. Right? Some of you can count how long you've known Jesus in terms of decades. Some of you, perhaps years. Maybe some of you months. Wouldn't it be wonderful even if it was days? But no matter how long it is, no matter how long you've known Jesus, no matter how long that you've seen him, none of us should be content with the knowledge that we have with him. No matter how much knowledge or how little knowledge. No matter how deep the knowledge that we have of Jesus or how shallow it is. No matter if it resides mostly in our head or if it's predominantly in our hearts. Whatever here. None of us should be content with simply how much we know about Jesus. Are you content with how much you know or how much you see him? Friends, I hope not. Because in Jesus Christ are the infinite riches of the wisdom of God. Do you think that when Jesus healed the blind man the first time, when he opened his eyes the first time and everything was blurry, that that man would have said, you know what, I can see better than I did. Don't bother trying again. Don't bother putting your hands back on my eyes. I can see a little better than before. I think I'm okay. Of course not. But are we content, though, to have only a partial, an incomplete, or an obscured vision of Jesus? That we have this little bit, that we have a blurry picture, and then, well, we'll call it good. See, being grateful for what you have, there's a difference here between being grateful for what you have and craving more, right? They're not opposed to each other. You can be grateful for what you have and crave more. Right? How many of you, with, in knowing your spouse as well, I'm grateful for how I know my spouse, but yet I, I'm content with the knowledge that I have. Right? I don't know about you, but when I eat pie, I'm grateful for the pie that I have, but I'm still craving more. But the same goes with seeing Jesus. Right? We're grateful for the knowledge, for the vision that we have of Jesus, but friends, we got to crave more. When we see his beauty, we will crave it more. Friends, do we see him in this way? Do we only see him blurry? Oh, let's crave him more. Let's understand him more. Because if knowing Jesus more might, have our, might mean our categories being upended, though, then it means that we also need to have a willingness, though, for our sight also to be expanded. That means our categories that we have for understanding Jesus need to be informed by his word. And categories that sometimes might not even sit very well with us. Categories that might not let us get too comfortable. But that's what happens when we approach the holy God, right? He challenges us, our assumptions, and he doesn't let us put him into a box. Is Jesus truly the Christ? Is he truly this one? Well, if so, then there's always more to see of Jesus. 
no matter our understanding or our, sta or our, our stage of knowing or understanding him. How's God led you along and how you've seen Jesus more? I know for myself, my sight of Jesus has grown over the years, even as a, as a little child. I mean, all it really was was I know Jesus as my Lord and Savior. As I continued to grow, though, over and over, more, more and more, seeing him more and more clearly, when I got to college, I began to see him a lot more than just as Lord and Savior. I began to see him as an anchor, as an anchor for my soul in, in times. As I continued to go on through seminary, I began to have a much deeper theological understanding of him. But not just theological, but also knowing him further in what it means to be united with this Jesus. And even till right now, I've continued to grow and know him clearly, or more clearly than before as I've understood him as a refuge. As I've understood his goodness as the Lord of the church. And the thing is that every phase there, I thought I saw Jesus. And I did see Jesus, but it was only a little bit there and it was blurry. And he has slowly been making uh, his picture come more and more into clarity right? for the church, his clarity for the church, his love for it, his clarity and love for us personally. And so do you want to see more of him? Do you want to see Jesus in this way, even if he pushes you, even if it's uncomfortable at times, even knowing him perhaps even through the difficulties that come in life? Because that's a whole other category that we're not going to get into this morning. But Jesus graciously opens our eyes and he wants you to know him. Jesus reveals to us and shows us our spiritual myopia. Our spiritual nearsightedness. And particularly he does so through the cross and the resurrection. And that's our second point this morning. Seeing Jesus through the cross. Seeing Jesus through the resurrection. The cross and resurrection, after all, for what Jesus is talking about, is what upends the disciples and their sight in verse 31. What is it that really begins to, 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 to get them, to cause them, what's going on? That's what he talks about, his sufferings and his death and then his, his rising again. And Jesus reveals to them what it means for him to be the Christ. And he tells them of his fate. He tells them, it says plainly, tells them boldly. And he opens their eyes to a fuller and a further understanding of what he would do as the Christ. He gives them a whole new category for their understanding. A whole new category that for them is quite confusing. Wait a second, a Christ, a, a Messiah who is rejected? One who suffers? One who dies? One who is raised again? But as Jesus is teaching them this and telling them this, he's not giving them anything new. Because Jesus, as he taught, it was all coming from the Old Testament. Everything would have been based from the Old Testament. All right, we read this morning, Isaiah 53, right, the song of the suffering servant. Now we look at it here, and you can imagine Jesus telling them he's bringing it into clearer focus for them here. And then the, the hope and the joyful restoration, though, that was promised with the Messiah, it comes and converges there with the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. They meet in the same person. And so like the blind man and his progressive sight of Jesus, so it happens also with these disciples here. Their eyes, their understanding, it's, it becomes to be, to be further opened. Jesus becomes less blurry. They begin to see him a little bit more clearly, but they get upset. It's upsetting to them. 
because it all seems unnecessary, at least certainly unexpected. I mean, do you ever think that maybe they felt some sort of loss? As if their hopes and dreams about what, 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 was, what was to come for them in, in their future may have slowly been, been crushed as they hear about, well, wait, you're going to be rejected? You're, you're going to die? What about the triumph? What about this glory that you've talked about or that we were expecting here? I mean, our dreams are being crushed right now, Jesus. What's happening? You're upending everything that we thought we've known. Enough so that Peter would pull him aside and say, what are you doing, Jesus? But in this moment, though, they express that common tendency to pull away from the cross. To pull away, or at least to diminish the cross. Because if the cross is true, and if it's necessary, as Jesus says, it was it's going to be necessary for him, him to, to suffer and die. If this is true, then it speaks all kinds of things about us, doesn't it? If the cross is true, then it reveals to us that we have a problem that goes much, much deeper than just how I act. It's a moral problem that goes all the way down to the core of my heart. It means that my, our natural state then, if the cross is true, our natural state is one of absolute helplessness, doesn't it? It reveals our need. It humbles us. But it also speaks about our need for God, though, too. It or sorry, it speaks about our God himself. His willingness to do such a thing. His wrath. His authority that he has. But yet, though the cross, in all of its blood, in all of its offensiveness, in all of its condemnation that's wrapped up with it, Jesus says that it's part of his mission. It's part of what he came to do. That he came to suffer. He came to rise again. His suffering would be redemptive. His suffering would, would be redemptive because the cross doesn't only show us our problem. It doesn't just show us the depths. It doesn't just condemn. But ultimately it's the cure and it lifts us up and it rises us up. It brings us up. It brings us up from who we are. It brings us from death. It brings us into life with Jesus Christ and it brings us into life with God the Father. As Jesus also though went to the cross with joy. This wasn't something that he did he, that, that, that he did just begrudgingly, but Hebrews 12 too says that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Seeing Jesus then properly must mean also seeing him through the cross, must mean seeing him through the resurrection. And it was so important for him that we hear this stern rebuke from Peter, or, or to the, the stern rebuke of Peter. It was a corrective to him. He says these strong words. He says, get behind me, Satan. Whoa. Get behind me, Satan. Obviously, something touched a nerve with Jesus there, didn't it? Because it was a major concern of his. Because the cross and the resurrection were vital to his mission, and he wasn't about to be pulled away from it. Peter's words to Jesus amounted essentially to a temptation. In one sense, Peter was almost tempting him away from the cross. Now, the word Satan, the name Satan, it just means adversary. And in that moment there, was, as Peter was, was rebuking Jesus, what are you doing about this cross stuff? Right? Are, you really good? are you really serious about this? Peter was speaking not in alignment with God. Peter was speaking in alignment with Satan in that moment. Jesus' shocking words reveal just how important the cross is. 
Right? You don't say something like that, get behind me, Satan, for just anything. But Peter was interfering with his mission. Get behind me, Satan. Peter, whose side are you on? Are you trying to stop me? Because you're acting more like my adversary in this moment. You're not actually setting your minds on the things of God in this moment. Because don't you understand that with my suffering, with my dying, with my rising again, this is God's plan of redemption for the world, for you, Peter. So pulling Jesus away from the cross is to pull Jesus away from his mission and his work. Peter was inadvertently tempting him, like Satan, to abandon his ministry and take things the easy way. And there's no way that Jesus could do something like that. Anything that diminishes the importance of the cross or of the resurrection to Jesus' person, of his work, of his ministry, anything that diminishes the importance of the cross and resurrection is in opposition to Jesus, and we even see here that it is demonic in origin. And that might sound harsh, but it's the implication of what Jesus is saying here. You're pulling me away from the cross? Get me behind me, Satan. Because that's a central movement of salvation, those three days as Jesus suffered, as he died, as he was buried, as he rose again there. Without that, without those three days, then Jesus is no savior the words that we confess there, everything on Jesus is just empty. And seeing a Jesus without the cross and the resurrection, if we see that Jesus here without a cross, without a resurrection, we're not seeing Jesus, we're seeing a mirage. Or at the very least, our vision is extremely, extremely blurry. So friends, don't lose sight of this Jesus, right? Hold fast to this Jesus. Don't let him go. Even if it's unpopular, don't pull away because everything in Jesus Christ, everything good about him, converges together in his cross and in his resurrection. Right? The love of Jesus, it comes to us here, it converges with the cross where he showed his love. He demonstrated his love while he died for sinners, while he took away all of our sins upon himself on the cross. And he raised us up into life then. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ converges with the cross and the resurrection because it was all done willingly by Jesus. We didn't deserve a single bit of it and it comes to us freely, not by our works, but what Jesus has done. The kingdom of God that Jesus came in, it is cruciform shaped, it is cross shaped, and it is full of resurrection life. The life of Jesus, the resurrection life. How does it come to us? It comes by us being brought in as sinful people, though, who are cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. We're made whole people, not just in the body with the resurrection, but in our souls with the cross. The hope and promise that we have of Jesus is enacted by his resurrection. His empathy for us as a high priest who continues to pray for us, to pray for you in your weakest moments, is because he, is a he was a crucified, suffering Savior. He knows what it's like to suffer, and he's been raised again, and he prays for you at the right hand of God the Father. How does he heal our brokenness? He takes all, I mean, he was himself was broken for us and raised up into new life that he will give to us. How, it's how he reconciles us together as family. He takes us as enemies. He puts to death the things that, that divide us, our enmity, not only with each other, but with God. And he brings us to life together. He brings us into God's family. 
See, don't you see the beauty of the cross? The cross and resurrection isn't something to be offended by, but the cross and the resurrection is something that makes Jesus incredibly beautiful to us. And because ultimately, a Jesus without the cross is only moralism and it's only law. The best that Jesus can do for you if there's no cross or resurrection is show you how to act. Be a better person. And if you think that's all that Jesus can do for you, then you'll find that you will wither. You will wilt. You will be crushed under the weight of trying to be like him and you will be left without all hope. But even here though, even with these difficult words to Peter, he's demonstrating his graciousness. He corrects their misunderstanding so that they will see him better, so that they will know him better. Are they firm words? Yeah, that's, those are firm words. They're stern. But are firm and stern words unloving always? Or is it because there's an important protective element that's involved with it? I mean, parents use firm words to convey the, the importance of safety to children in certain moments of potential danger, right? Get out of the road! I'm not angry with you. I'm just trying to get your attention. Could it be that seeing Jesus without the cross and without the resurrection in view is also dangerous? The Christ that we confess and we follow is one who is crucified and who is raised for us. The table, the, the Lord's Supper that he sets out for us every week here, that he gave to us, it displays a crucified Christ, but it also promises a future to us with the risen Jesus Christ. And so may Jesus continue to show us himself. May we never grow discontent in this Jesus or lose focus of a different one. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that you would open our eyes. We are blind people. Open our eyes to see Jesus clearer and further and deeper and better with our whole selves, with our whole hearts, body and soul. Don't let us grow content or complacent thinking that, well, we, we know enough about him. Would his, the craving that we have for him just continue to overwhelm us and grow us to love this Jesus more and more, to love the Jesus who came to us, not a Jesus of our own making, but the beautiful Jesus, Father, whom you gave to us, we pray that you would prepare us as we come to the table to receive from him. Amen.